Welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. We're in week three of our Collide series, where we're looking at human emotions as seen in the Psalms. Thus far, we've looked at doubt and fear, and this week, lead pastor Jeff Kincaid turns our attention to tears or sorrow. So those of you who have been with us for the last few weeks know that we've been in a series uh, about how to deal with our emotions, and we've called this series Collide, and we're looking at where emotions meet truth in the Psalms. And really, the question in this series is, what are we to do with our emotions? Because emotions are tricky. They, They always feel so real in the moment, don't they? But they're not always true. And I keep reviewing each week of this series the fact that people have historically taken one of two different approaches as it relates to their emotions. One popular approach among uh, religious circles is to deny your emotions, to repress them. It's just, they're just too ugly to admit. They're too powerful to admit. And so we just, we just deny that we have them and we, we stuff them. The other approach that is very popular in our culture is to indulge them. To let them control you and define you. To believe that whatever it is that you feel is a true indicator of reality. And that your feelings must always be acted upon. Those are the two different approaches. But as we've been seeing, the Bible argues for an altogether different approach. The Bible argues that emotions are real, but they're not necessarily true. Therefore, our emotions must be processed. Yeah, their emotions are part of being human, but they don't always correspond with reality. And so they have to be processed. And really by processed, what we mean as we're seeing in the Psalms is that our emotions must be prayed through. They must be looked at and dealt with and submitted to the light of the truth of God. Now, so far in this series, we've talked about doubt and we've talked about fear. But today I want to talk about tears, sorrow anguish. What are we to do with our tears? Because isn't it true that when we feel deep sorrow, it's in those moments that we are most tempted to doubt at the very least God's goodness, if not his very existence. When you've held an all-night vigil in the hospital waiting room for your child, and the doctor walks in, takes your hand, and says, I'm sorry. There's nothing else we can do. Or when the roses have faded and the candlelight flickers dimly in your marriage and he looks across the table at you and he says, I'm sorry, I just don't love you anymore. I found someone else and I won't be here tomorrow when you get home. Or when the fertility specialist says, I'm sorry, but you won't be able to have a a baby of your own. Or the myriad of other ways that life finds to strike a blow at your hopes and dreams. What are we to do with our tears? And again, the Psalms are such a, I mean, they're such a perfect place to go to, to look for help with our tears. Because as I've said throughout this series, that you know, while the Psalms deal with every kind of human emotion, I mean every kind, there are more Psalms that deal with sorrow and tears than any other kind of Psalm. That's the most prevalent in all of the Psalms. And so if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me this morning to Psalm 126. 
uh, Psalm 126. And one of the first things that you will see under the title that says Psalm 126 is that this is a song of ascents, a song of ascents. And there are 15 of these psalms, and they're all found in one section from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And the reason that they're called songs of ascent was that Jerusalem, which was the religious capital of Israel, was set on a high hill. And so when the people came to Jerusalem for the three festivals, three religious festivals that they were to have each year, they traditionally sang these psalms as they walked up the hill from their homes and they ascended to the city, a song of ascent. So let's read from verse one. We'll read the whole psalm together. It's pretty short. Let's read it together. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. I think you can see this. As I said, it's a short psalm. If you look at it from a 30,000-foot perspective, you can probably see pretty easily that it divides neatly, really, into two parts. Verses 1 through 3 celebrate a time in Israel's past when God did something so big, some deliverance of some kind, some answer to prayer that was so big that they were filled with wonder. We don't know exactly what that answer to prayer was or what that deliverance was. Some think it has to do with the return of the exiles from captivity in Babylon, later Persia, but we don't know that for sure. No one really knows exactly what, it's, what it refers to. We just know that God delivered them in some huge way. In fact, it was so big that verse 2 says that all of the nations around them took notice. They were like, look at this. Look at what God has done for the people of Israel. Listen to the emotions again in these first three verses. He says, we were like men who dreamed. There was laughter. There were songs of joy. We were filled with joy. They almost sound giddy over God's deliverance. Have you ever felt that way? Like where God came through in some way, some way so huge, that when he did, you were just giddy. I've had that happen. I told you uh, a few weeks ago that uh, I was once in a lawsuit over a house that we bought. At the time, all the money that we had in the world was tied up in this house, and it looked very much like we were going to, to lose it all. The contractor Uh, hadn't done some of the work that he was supposed to do. He was a bully. Uh, He used the legal system to stall his day of reckoning in hopes that we would just wear down and, you know, back out. We didn't want to be in a lawsuit. It was just the only way that we could get this guy to do what he was supposed to do. There really wasn't any question that we would win. It was just whether we could hang in there long enough. But our lawyer did tell us this. He told us, he said, look, there's, there's little, there's very little chance that you will collect anything other than a moral victory. And this lawsuit hung over us like a dark cloud for seven years. It was a seven-year lawsuit. 
One day I was sitting in my office and my lawyer called me and he said, you're not going to believe this. In fact, I don't believe this. But I have a check for you for the full amount that the man owes you plus legal fees in my office. Come on down and pick it up. And I'm going to tell you that we felt what the psalmist describes in verses 1 through 3. We were overjoyed. We were so unbelievably giddy. In fact, so much so that on the way to the lawyer's office, as I was driving down there to his office in the middle of Dallas traffic, a guy on the freeway got mad at me for something, pulled up in the lane next to me to give me that one-finger salute. You know what I'm referring to when I talk about a one-finger salute? Do you know what I'm referring to? Okay. Even that, though, didn't make me angry. I just waved at him like he was my dear departed grandma, which then made him so mad that he took both hands off the wheel and saluted me with both hands. But I'm telling you, I was so happy, so giddy, so full of joy, like the psalmist describes here, that my mouth was filled with laughter and my tongue with songs of joy. I kept just waving at him with a huge smile on my face, which made him finally throw his hands up in the air in exasperation that he couldn't make me respond in anger, and he just speeded up and drove right by me. This is what we felt, just giddy over God's deliverance. Have you ever felt like that, where God comes through for you in some big way, and you were just ecstatic? Have you ever felt that? That's what the psalmist is describing in verses 1 through 3. But verses 4 through 6 have a completely different feel, don't they? Restore our fortunes, he says. Restore. There are tears again and weeping. Something else has happened now. This is what life is like, right? Just because you go through one thing that's very hard doesn't mean you're never going to go through something hard again. It's, I mean, there's so many good things that happen in life, but also life comes at you in waves. Trying to destroy your hopes and your dreams. We don't know what it is that they were going through this next time, the second time. Maybe, maybe they're in the throes of a war against an enemy that's much stronger. Maybe there's a famine that has hit the land. We don't really know. Whatever is happening, the psalmist compares their dilemma to, he says, it streams in the Negev. He's asking that God would come in and do something for them like streams in the Negev. The Negev was a naturally barren, lonely, dry desert. That's where they are. Now, I, when I say that's where they are, I don't, mean, I don't mean necessarily physically, but certainly metaphorically, that's where they are. God will have to intervene into their situation for them to be delivered. The Negev didn't naturally have water. They needed God to do something for them, to come through for them in some way that they couldn't. They're desperate again, just like they were the last time that God delivered them. And they're remembering, this is, I think this is very important, They're remembering in the first three verses what God did last time in order to encourage them this time. That's an important thing to do when you find yourself in difficult times. Remember what God did last time to deliver you so that you'll be encouraged this time. But I want you to write this down as we think about how to to handle our tears. I want you to write this point down. Make a note of it in some way. Christianity makes no promise that there won't be tears on this side of heaven. I'm going to say that again for those that might be listening to our podcast. Christianity makes no promise that there won't be tears on this side of heaven. Now, I have to tell you something. 
I thought long and hard about whether to include that point in this talk, and I, I almost didn't, because I thought, I thought, well, this is such an obvious point that it doesn't even need to be made. Like, if you just read the Bible at the most cursory level, you will see this, that Christianity doesn't make any promise that there's not going to be any tears this side of heaven. There's Jesus' mother, Mary, who suffered like only a mother can as she watched through eyes that were blurred by tears her son die on a cross. Many of the letters of the New Testament are written to people whose faith cost them dearly. They lost loved ones. They lost all that they owned. They, were, they suffered imprisonment for their faith. And of course, this, this truth isn't just limited to the pages of the Bible. Since the closing of the New Testament canon, there have been Christian martyrs throughout history who've been thrown to the lions, burned at the stake, crucified upside down, tortured in many ways for their faith. And of course, it's not just in, in, in the Bible and not just in church history. If you, just, if you just look around you, people here could tell you about times and, and ways that they've suffered terrible pain. Some of the most godly And faithful Christians I know have suffered severely, losing children, dying painful deaths, experiencing financial ruin. Some have adult children whom they haven't heard from in years. And yet, in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary, I I decided that this point is just not as obvious as you might think. On the one hand, there are many who have been misled by false teachers. They've been taught that believing in Christ means that the normal Christian experience should be one that is free of pain and tragedy. Like if you just believe in Christ and do your part to obey, then God will do his part to make sure that you and yours are always healthy and wealthy. Not only is this evidentially untrue, as I just described, the pages of scripture, church history, people around you currently. It's also a flat denial of the gospel of grace. If the quality of your obedience dictates God's disposition toward you, if it makes him love you and bless you more or less, then the gospel isn't about grace, is it? It's about merit. It's not about Christ's obedience. It's about your obedience. And that's really no different than any other religion in the world, including Islam, Buddhism, any religion, Mormonism, anything else in the world. It's no different. So there have been people on the one hand that have been taught that the normal Christian experience shouldn't include any pain. On the other hand, though, there are those of you who understand principally that Christianity makes no promise of health and wealth this side of heaven, but you don't understand it functionally, and here's what I mean by that. And listen closely, because I think this includes a lot of us here today. You can sit in here and sing songs of God's grace like we just did a little while ago, and you can nod your head in affirmation when I preach about God's grace. But when tragedy strikes you, When something terrible happens, when life does its best to break your heart, you think to yourself this. 
What did I do that caused God to punish me in this way? What did I do that's caused God to punish me in this way? Isn't that true? And that thought torments you. You blame yourself. You see all of your shortcomings, all of your faults, all of your sins as the reason that this tragedy has hit and that this is God's way of punishing you, you think to yourself. God's way of teaching you a lesson in his wrath and his anger towards you. And do you know what's so menacing about that way of thinking? There's not a one of us with an ounce of self-awareness who can't find something or multiple somethings in our life that if this is how God's work, if this is how God works, might have caused it. I mean, it could be because I said I did this or I said that or I didn't have my devotions or whatever it is. And it can quite literally drive you insane. And you see, I think a lot of us, we know principally about grace, but functionally, we don't live I was talking to an old friend the other day. I know where he stands on the gospel of grace. He knows it principally very well, backwards and forwards. He's taught it to many other people. But when something difficult hit his life, his first instinct was to see it as God's punishment for something that he had done wrong. Now, see, I, I came to the conclusion that I really have to make this point that Christianity makes no promise that there won't be tears this side of heaven. Because even if we believe that to be true principally, we don't believe it functionally. But just look at this psalm. Where in verses 4 through 6 do you find the people here repenting? Where? Or confessing some sin. You don't find it. It's not there. Why? Because you need to expect tears in this life. Whether you believe in Christ or don't believe in Christ, this is a broken world where there are some wonderful things that happen and there are some terrible things that happen. There are some beautiful things that happen and there are some unjust things that happen. And so you need to adjust your expectations. Christianity makes no promise that there won't be tears on this side of heaven. And you just need to understand that. No matter what somebody on TV teaches. And the next time that you go through something tragic, maybe you're in it right now, and you find yourself examining all of the reasons that this might have happened. It's because God is punishing you for something you've done wrong. Know this. That's not true. Bad things happen to good people in a fallen world. Let me move on. I want you to write this down. I'll explain it in just a moment. But write this down. Sow your tears. Sow your tears. And by sow, I don't mean, for those of you who are listening on the podcast, I don't mean, you know, needle and thread sow. I mean sow as in an agricultural use of the word, sow your tears. The psalmist actually uses that expression in this psalm. And and I have to admit that it deeply confused me this week. I was meeting with uh, our staff. We do a chapel every Thursday. And as we were doing our chapel, I was talking about, during my portion, I was talking about this idea of sowing tears. And uh, I I said, I don't have any idea what that means. It's in verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, 
Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. And I wondered what in the world that meant. Now, like, if the tears weren't in there, it would make perfect sense. Like, if you didn't say sow with tears, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Those of you who are farmers, maybe you came from that kind of background. You know that this is how things work. You sow seed, and then if the weather's been good to you, and if you've cared for your plants properly, at harvest time, you can sing songs of joy, carrying, your, carrying the fruits of your labor in. That makes perfect sense. But this isn't that straightforward. It's much more of a poetic image. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I, I, I couldn't figure this out. Until, in my study, I came across something that I want to read to you. And it, this is, I'm going to warn you, this is a little lengthy. I don't think I've ever read anything this long uh, in a sermon here at City Church. But I think that this is the best way for you to understand what this means. The little thing that I'm going to read here is written by a man who had served as a missionary in West Africa, specifically in a stretch of the Savannah called, a stretch of Savannah called the Sahel which is just under the Sahara Desert. And I want you to listen very closely to what he says. He says, In the Sahel, all the moisture comes in a four-month period, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. The ground cracks from dryness, so do your hands and feet. The winds of the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet into the air, and then it comes slowly drifting across West Africa as a fine grit. It gets inside your mouth. It gets inside your watch and stops it. The year's food, of course, must all be grown in those four months. People grow sorghum or milo in small fields. October and November, these are beautiful months. The granaries are full. The harvest is calm. People sing and dance. They eat two meals a day. The sorghum is ground between two stones to make flour and then a mush with the consistency of yesterday's cream of wheat. The sticky mush is eaten hot. They roll it into little balls between their fingers. They drop it into a bit of sauce and then they pop it into their mouths and the meal lies heavy on their stomachs so they can sleep. December comes and the granaries start to recede. Many families omit the morning meal. Certainly by January... Not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. By February, the evening meal diminishes. The meal shrinks even more during March, and children begin, begin to succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on half a meal a day. April is the month that haunts my memory. He says, in it, you hear the babies crying in the twilight. Most of the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Then... Inevitably, it happens. A six or seven-year-old boy comes running to his father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy, daddy, we've got grain, he shouts. Son, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists, out in the hut where we keep the goats. There's a leather sack hanging up on the wall, and I reached up, and I put my hand down in there. Daddy, there's grain in there. Give it, give it to mommy so she can make flour, and tonight our tummies can sleep. And the father stands motionless. Son, we can't do that, he softly explains. That's next year's seed grain. 
It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains, and then we must use it. The rains finally arrive in May, and when they do, the young boy watches as his father takes the sack from the wall and does the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes to the field and with tears streaming down his face, he takes the precious seed and he throws it away. He scatters it in the dirt. Why? Because he believes in the harvest. The seed is his. He owns it. He can do anything with it he wants. The act of sowing it hurts so much that he cries. And he goes on, but as the African pastors say when they preach on Psalm 126, brothers and sisters, this is God's law of the harvest. Don't expect to rejoice later on unless you've been willing to sow in tears. And then the author concludes with this. He says, I want to ask you, how much would it cost you to sow in tears? To find a way to say, I believe in the harvest, and therefore I will give what makes no sense. The world would call me unreasonable to do this, but I must sow regardless in order that I may someday celebrate with songs of joy. Do you understand what he's asking? So often things happen to us that bring deep sorrow and they bring anguish and they bring tears that never seem to dry and we don't have an answer as to why it happened. We wonder why in the world would something like this happen and we don't get an answer. It makes no sense. And to the cynic, this is proof that the universe has no meaning. It's just meaningless. And to the atheist, it is proof that there is no good God. And if all we lived by was sight alone, we would agree and we would despair. But when you live by faith in Christ, instead of despairing in your sorrows, you do the thing that seems unimaginable to most people. You sow in tears. You trust that the good God that you believe in will somehow someday inexplicably work all things together for the good of those who love him. And you sow that seed in tears. It's a seed of faith. You sow it in tears today knowing that one day it will all make sense. It might not be this side of heaven. It may not be till eternity. You allow God to grow you in grace in some way through this pain. That's what it means to sow in tears. As followers of Christ, we're called to never waste our sorrows. We sow them knowing that there's a harvest that will come. Do you see how different this is from religion? Religion would say, well, you stuff your tears and you just give the right answer. You know, just deny what you feel. Everything's okay, you would say. That's what religion says. Pop culture would say, indulge your tears. Let them drive you to despair. Let them convince you that there's no meaning in the world because you can't make any sense of this. 
Christianity says something altogether different. It says, those tears are real. God knows every one of your tears. But sow your tears. And the result is joy. Do you know what joy is? I've always, I've always found that word joy to be such a, uh, an ambiguous word. I, I've never... I never really understood it for so long. It's not happiness. That's, it's really different than happiness. Like if you're at the funeral of someone that you love, you're not feeling happy. The Bible says that you can feel joy because here's what joy is. Listen to this, joy. Joy is confidence that God has it all planned out for good. You don't understand it, It's not that you could see it. It's not that you can understand how he has it all planned out for good, but it's confidence that God does have it all planned out for good. And the only way that you can have that confidence is that in every tear, in every tragedy, in every sorrow, you sow your tears every time. Every time. And so while Christianity makes no promise that there won't be tears this side of heaven, it does promise that God will make sense of those tears one day and he will use all of this sorrow for good in some way that you and I couldn't possibly imagine. And so what's the point? Well, the point is to sow your tears. Some of you are facing situations even today You're in anguish. You're in sorrow. We might not see it. You may come in here with a big smile on your face and make us all convinced that everything's fine, but make us all believe that everything's fine in your life. But inside, you know, you're you're in anguish. Sow your tears. Sow your tears. Now, I want to wrap up with this last point because I wondered as I read this and this idea of sowing your tears, I thought, okay, so sow your tears and they will result in confidence that God, that God has it all planned out for good. But I wondered to myself, how do I know that? Like if I've never sowed my tears before, and this is the first time, how do I know that God has this all planned out for good? How do I know that? What proof is there that God has it all planned out for good? And I realized that the answer, it's like everything else. It's in the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ changes our tears. It convinces us that God has it all planned out for good. Let me show you three ways very quickly, and then I'll end. First, when you go through tragedy, there is this temptation, isn't there, to believe that God has abandoned you in the midst of it, that you feel alone, that you're, you despair. But I want you to understand that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, there was a moment when he cried out in anguish of his own, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you realize that in that moment, God abandoned, forsook his son Jesus so that you would never have to be abandoned or forsaken. Jesus took the abandonment that you deserved for your sins so that you would never have to be abandoned because of your sins. Whatever you're going through right now, know this. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not alone. God hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forsaken you. Know that because of what Jesus did on the cross. Here's the second. 
Here's the second way that it gives us confidence. When you go through tragedy, I said this a little while ago, you're tempted to think that somehow this is God punishing you for your sins. I want you to know that if you have believed on Christ, you can know that on the cross, God punished Jesus for your sins so that you would never have to be punished for your sins. You don't have to live with that torment anymore of trying to examine your past and obsessing over which sin it was that you're being punished for. You don't have to live with all that guilt anymore. No, it's done. You're not being punished for your sin. Jesus was punished for your sin. And so you can have peace and joy in the midst of even this terrible anguish that you're going through. And finally, third, finally, third, do you realize that it was through Jesus' tears that you have been brought into relationship with God? When you see, when you see Jesus on the cross, you see tears that bring joy. He is the one who sowed in tears and who, whose tears have brought songs of joy. We, saw, we, we sang songs of joy just a little while ago. We'll sing another one before we leave. All over the world today, those who have believed in Christ are singing worship songs of joy because of his tears on the cross all through human history. Since the day that Jesus died on the cross, people have been singing songs of joy because of what Jesus did there on the cross. Do you understand that? The cross changes even our tears. And so this morning, if you find yourself in tears, I don't know what you're going through. But I know that, I know just because I know so many of you and I know the phone calls I get, I got one last night. I know that many of you here today are in anguish. Know this. If that's where you're at, know that's to be expected in this life. You're not being punished. God hasn't abandoned you. Sow your tears in faith of God's goodness. And let me tell you where the best soil is to sow those tears. It's at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And look to the cross of Christ for proof of God's goodness and that he can work even the greatest tragedy in all of human history. The Son of God, perfect, loves all humanity was crucified unjustly on a cross. That's the greatest tragedy in history. God's son died. And yet he worked it for such good. And let God produce in you a confidence through this. that Whatever it is that you're going through, he has it all planned for good. Would you bow your heads with me? Of all the Emotions we've talked about so far, Lord, I can imagine that this is probably the one that more people are feeling than any other emotion. Lord, for those that are here in anguish, I pray that you would, have, that you would speak to their hearts today, that you would encourage them through this. I pray that you would give them the ability to sow their tears in, in the fertile soil of the cross of you, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, for those that are here today who've 
I don't know, maybe they've never understood, maybe they've never heard that you died on the cross for their sins. Lord, would you just speak deeply to their hearts and let them know how much you love them. And, and Lord, you know, I know there are people here that would say, well, you know, I, I don't have enough faith. Lord, you know, remind them that it only takes a, a, just a small seed of faith. That's all it takes. Would you bring them to the point that they acknowledge that they're a sinner and that they need you? Lord, for those today that are believers, again, bring us to a place that we look at the cross to see how it changes even our tears. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus, and worship today. Amen. Some 700 years before Jesus lived, a man named Isaiah, who was a prophet in the nation of Israel, predicted, foretold, or prophesied the coming of the Christ, or the arrival of the Messiah. His prophecy was detailed, and one specific detail was that this Messiah, this Christ, would be a man of sorrows. A saying of ours at City Church is that the cross changes everything, as we see this week, even our tears or our sorrow. And that's because Jesus, this Messiah, was a man of sorrow. Jesus' sorrow can be the source of your sorrow's healing. If you identify, own, and process through what's at the heart of your sorrow. And as a believer in Jesus, you can do so with the full assurance and security of God's love, acceptance, and approval. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week on the City Church Evansville podcast. We'd love for you to attend on a Sunday morning at either 9.15 or 11 a.m. here in downtown Evansville at 314 Market Street.